Yeah, so in as much as I understand it, so I did not know, know the name Delody stands <laughs> for Deliver or Die. And I want to really honor your mission because I see a lot of people, you know, still staying more in that, you know, creating cash on one side through extractive business models. And then, you know, they have their pivotal moment and then they start something new. So I know from my own personal lived experience that it takes quite some stamina, you know, time and again to get back and say, no, I'm not taking this job because I don't believe in it. And even though it will mm -hmm. would pay, you know, bigger invoices and um, create more money on that side, but staying true and aligned to your vision. The next mm -hmm. question would then be to listen into the flywheel you're mm -hmm. trying to create. Mm -hmm. um, before we do that, I'd like to say something on that. And that's a painful process of building a platform like Delity. Um, because I think that's that's important to take into account because you're totally dead on, right? <laughs> this is this is not easy. And if if your choice is an existential choice between do I take this job or do I close the company or do we not pay salaries or something like that? It becomes really, really hard. And it was hard like that for a couple of years before it became stable. Delity is now almost 10 years old. And I would say it started becoming stable after three to four years. And usually I would say a business should be stable after two to three years. Um, but it definitely was harder in the beginning, definitely. And there was enormous pain involved. Um, but the pain of not succeeding felt bigger. So that's pushed us through that um, until we reached a state of equilibrium where we, where we actually believe that this is a stable, small software shop, but that's doing just enough to, do, to allow us to do what we want to do. Right? And that's the core question. What is enough? Be very clear on what is enough. Um, okay, so the flywheel. Um, yeah, you were mentioning three plus two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think a core part, obviously, of the flywheel being Delody. I think we sorted it out. Boutique software company, values-based, mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. always coming from the question what is enough and then you were mentioning like three plus mm -hmm. two because i know yeah. we we both get like very synthetic and ecosystemical but let's start the flywheel with the three plus two yeah 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 i was hesitating because i um, was thinking maybe it's helpful to go into some underlying theories but maybe we can do that later so um one thing we do is uh, we call we call it motherland motherland is an example a lived example, hopefully soon lived example, <laughs> of how we could think about a new kind of eco economic system. An ec economic system that is very locally bound in its physical domain, but still bioregional or even global in its non-physical domain. And what we do with Motherland is in we bring African startups together with African farmers in rural settings, of course, that's where farmers are, to solve some of the most important issues that these farmers have in order to, in phase one, 
make them more successful in the traditional marketplace. But then in phase two, create incentives to reinvest their success locally. To finally, in phase three, become more self-sufficient as a community than they are now. Right, so so that's the um, that's the pathway that that's um, that we want to build there. In which countries is Motherland based, and can you sketch the ecosystem a little bit? Like so so for the for the last two and a half years, we've been doing um, field research in Africa with um, led by a, an amazing group of roughly fifty Africans who are farmers, policymakers, entrepreneurs, etc., to identify what's actually needed. And led by um, two white dudes from, from uh, Germany who just facilitate the process and never add content, right? That's super important. It's fully owned in, in um, the IP is fully owned in Africa. Um, the, what we what we really struggled with was getting financing for this. Um, actually, we were very close to ditching the effort in the beginning of the year. And since then, <laughs> we have received um, funding for the first pilot of um, 300,000 euros. It's not a lot, but it's doable, right? We can do a solid pilot and it's going to happen in the fall. It's going to start in fall in either Nigeria or Kenya. We're just figuring out which communities there are the most um, promising communities for the first pilot. Now, how you can envision that is <clears throat> there's a village of roughly 2,000 people. There are a couple of hundred farmers that are above subsistence farming. So they, they actually sell to the marketplace. They have four main issues. One is access to market. How do they know how much they can get for their produce, um, at what time, um, when is it needed, what will be needed, right? Market access. Logistics, how do I get that to the market so it's not beaten up by, times come, uh, by the time it comes to the market, right? We're, we're talking gravel roads for, for miles and miles, right? So, so it's, not, um, it's not on the highway here or flying. Storage, you wanna be able to store some of your produce in order to even out market demand. And finally, refinement. You know, if, if you, the largest exporter for the refined product of coffee in the world is Germany. Not a single fucking bean grows in Germany, right? So that's an imbalance because the high markup happens in the refinement process. So what if we can move refinement into the lo local areas? And right? so, so these are these are the four most important components. And we have a database of almost 350 startups across Africa that do exactly that. And um, one of our financing partners, the GIZ, obviously they have um, a whole range of startups as well that's, that can help with them. Yeah. Um... I wonder now if I simply open up for you to to sketch the tapestry beyond motherland 
-hmm. and you know see where this symbol you know in the joint shared yeah. room of the flywheel you know comes up organically yeah um <clears throat> let me let me try that so <clears throat> but before i i think i need to need to frame it a little bit um for 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 it to make sense i was speaking about the the negative emergences of our currency design right so we create money at a rate of two to three percent per year and um, faster than we can destroy it right? so so there's a there's an exponential growth rate in our global money supply roughly doubling every 25 years and we want to have the sense that this is actually worth something so when we started running out of gold, which was our default to do that uh, in the early 70s. Nixon attached a dollar to the GDP. Um, and then everybody was attached to the dollar. So we were effectively, our the value of the 2 to 3% of growth of money was attached directly to the American economy. Now, the, that measures, GDP measures how many bits or atoms we can move through that economy per year. It doesn't qualify what we do with them. That, of course, is not, not only an invitation, it's an imperative, an obligation for growth. If you don't grow, your economy will falter. Your money will be devalued. Now, there's one level underneath that, which is... Which, which we often overlook and which is crucially of crucial importance. We need energy to move atoms or bits. And this energy supply needs to grow by 2 to 3% every year as well. Currently, we're feeding ourselves 19 terawatts to run humanity. Now, this is possible because we stumbled over this, this um, uh, fossil fuel battery. Now, this fossil fuel battery is... Um, creating very negative externalities, as we know. And at the same time, it's running out. It's becoming prohibitively expensive to mine for that stuff. And our default go-to answer is, oh, let's go renewable. But it turns out that even if we manage to invest the additional energy to mine for the rare earths, we need to go renewable and to build the infrastructure we need to distribute these new forms of energy, we would max out at nine terawatts. That's less than half of what we do right now. Right? And it's a, it's a false assumption that um, we can um, become more efficient and go down to nine terawatts in a system that has a growth obligation. We have been becoming more efficient over the years, incredibly so. Um, that's called relative decoupling. But in our absolute decoupling, we're really, really bad. Our energy demand grows by 2 to 3% as well. Right? So this constitutes, in, in combination with some design flaws in our democracies, a multipolar trap that is very, very hard to escape. Right? And this is what makes um, what you addressed as uh, the, 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 the tough um, aspects of doing something like social entrepreneurship, extremely hard, right? Because you effectively have to operate within a system while acting 
in a, in a different kind of system because you're not fit to that extractive system. So the flywheel tries to come up with the components that are required to build a strong ecosystem that allows others to start building outside of, let's call it game A, right? Game A being that thing that constitutes the multipolar trap that's trapped into the multipolar trap and game B something else, right? We don't know exactly what, but, but something else that we, that, we, that we do afterwards. Okay, so um, I mentioned motherland. Motherland as an example, as a test bed, as a experimentation ground. Then we run GITA. And GITA stands for Global Impact Tech Alliance, um, which my good friend Cecile Bilius, who's um, the spearheading impact uh, investing in, in Israel for more than 30 years and is now turning Pitango, the largest uh, fund in, in Israel, into an impact fund. Um, and what we do with GITA is that we, after also more than two years of experimentation, we're now bringing together the most radical impact tech investors on the, on the planet, the ones that can afford to build infrastructure for an entirely different system. They don't need to, they don't have the market pressures that force them to return on their investments after a couple of years. They can actually wait out um, until the system collapses and the current system and have the infrastructural elements in place for the new system and emerge much, much stronger. It's slightly comparable if you, if you need a picture to um, how people thought about Amazon in the 90s. Right. Now, Amazon is a global dominator. Um, and just a bit more than 20 years ago, everybody was laughing Amazon out of the room saying they won't even survive um, the, the turn of the millennium. It's a, it's a sunk uh, investment, etc. So it's a, it's a similar kind of thinking. It's a, you see an entirely new paradigm and you invest into the infrastructure of that new paradigm, regardless of whether it makes sense in the cart. Right? That's the kind of investors we bring together and create products out of, that, of, of, the, of conversations within that very small group that are intended to help others to understand what's going on and then direct their investments into that impact tech space as well of building infrastructure for a good future. That's what we do with Gita. So that's, that's the money supply part of it. Now, money is good, but um, something can help directing money in the right direction and opening the field for new entrepreneurial activities. And that's policy. So with an initiative called the IRM, Initiative for the Regenerative Market Economy, we are opening the playground, the conversation around between society and politics around what is it actually that we want to do as a uh, society? How, what, what does economy mean? Um, how do we want it to be shaped in order to generate something like a good life? So that's the policy element of it. 
Now we have an example, we have money, we have policy. Now we need science, right? Science, and that's, that, that, was, that was the three first ones. These are functioning organizations. And that's why I said three plus two, because the next two are in their, their um, still emerging um, phase. They're not functioning organizations yet, but we're working on that. So one is around gathering the science, scientists that work on new kinds of infrastructural solutions and just give a given feeling for what that might be is there are plants called hyperaccumulators that are capable of accumulating certain minerals. Meaning you can use plants for mining processes. You can actually then harvest copper from a, from a plant. Being much, much, much more in tune, of course, with nature. Or you can generate electricity straight from water, sunlight, and algae. Very easy, very spreadable, very scalable, right? Um, but this is in its infancy. We need to find new ways of learning, deeply learning from nature. We need to, as a society, invest into that, into directing scientific question asking towards a new form of technology, a form of a technology that's actually life-serving and in tune with nature. So that's, that's what we call it nextness, might have a different name, is about. And then finally, of course, the doers. We can think and talk a long, long time. It's, um, it's very tempting to um, be somewhere in a room with bright people and, um, and come up with these nice theories about um, what we could and should and must do. But we also have to do them. And this links back to something I wanted to say about um, social entrepreneurship, because to me, entrepreneurship is inherently a social thing. We just lost track for a while. If you look at the old founders 100 years ago, 150 years ago, many, most of them had their community in mind, had the, their, the, the responsibility in mind for the, for the world because they were an important part. They understood they were an important part of that. And so I call them just the doers, right? Um, or to, to, to go to the etymological um, foundation of entrepreneur is the undertakers, the people that do things in the world, right? So there's a, there's a place called uh, the Pirate Academy where we find these people that can work under um, situations of scarcity like a pirate did. <laughs> Um, with high creativity um, to solve and develop things that are outside of the norm. And it's important to know that the, the, the first versions of some of the first versions of the modern democracy actually came from pirates. Pirates had um, health insurance. They needed to, right? <laughs> if you lose a limb, then you needed to be sure um, that's, that you would be taken care of. 
so the Pirate Academy is the, is the bucket um, to find the doers, the people who can work under scarcity, um, find creative solutions. And it is really important to, to know and understand that pirates were the source of a lot of social innovation. Parts of our modern configuration for democracy come from pirates. Pirates had health insurance and pensions. They had female leaders and black leaders at a time where that was absolutely impossible in the rest of the world. The rest of the Western world, let's, let's, let's focus on that. So um, that's a lot of fun, uh, but it's also um, still in its infancy. There's, um, there are things going on in the background that are too, far too early to talk about and to, to bring this flywheel to completion. But these are the types of organizations uh, that constitute it. So example, money, policy, science, and entrepreneurs.